try as I may, I could never explain what I hear when you don't say everyone, and welcome to Intersections Matches Talk Radio, a show for people who resonate with Mahatma Gandhi's quote, learn like you're going to live forever, live like you're going to die tomorrow. This is Jasbina, your host and the founder of Intersections Match, a global first-size matchmaking and coaching company for successful and commitment-minded singles. I'm very excited to welcome to today's show, Dr. Wendy Walsh. Dr. Wendy Walsh, a psychologist and award-winning journalist, whose wealth of experiences includes hosting and reporting for dozens of news information shows on HBO, Fox Sports, Court TV, Investigation Discovery Network, and Warner Brothers syndicated magazine show Extra, being named one of Time Magazine's Persons of the Year after speaking out about harassment at Fox News, Serving as an expert commentator on CNN, The O'Reilly Factor on Fox News, HLN, NBC, CBS, and ABC, catching the eye of Dr. Phil's producers and thereafter being tapped to join the nationally syndicated show, The Doctors, where she was nominated for a Daytime Emmy Award, teaching psychology, as well as authoring three books. Dr. Wendy Walsh is currently combining her love of relationship science and evolutionary psychology as she hosts both the Mating Matters podcast and her own radio show in partnership with iHeartMedia, as well as teaching psychology. So welcome, Dr. Wendy. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're, it's such a pleasure to have you. And let's just jump in. So what are some of the most common dating and mating myths? that you've come across over the years, which have now been debunked by relationship science? Well, I would say the number one myth regarding relationships is simply the idea that love is about luck. Love is not about Mm. luck. Love is about skill. Love is about what we were taught in our early life as a blueprint or a roadmap for love. Love isn't about selecting the right partner It's about being the right partner. So that's the first big myth. The second big myth is that many people are trapped in our culture's ideology that says that two people will meet, they will fall in love, and they will stay together until death do us part. When this actually goes against what happened in our hunter-gatherer past and what our biology has been primed for, in truth, there are many, many monogamous humans. We, I know, let's not dispute that. But we do have the widest range of sexual behavior of any primate. In addition, even the most monogamous of humans may see two or even three long stints of monogamy in their life with some mate selection in between. We call that dating because of our very long life expectancies that we didn't have in our past. So trying to beat yourself up because of divorce or breakups, 
um, or multiple relationships that seem to be not working, I want to remind people it's not your fault. It's partly your attachment style and how you are programmed, and it's partly society's pressure for you to be something that you may not be. Thank you. A lot of a lot of stuff to dive in there. And actually, that being said, you may you said something interesting, which is there are some people, right? There are some who um for whom that monogamy is important. And like you said, there may be sins throughout given the long lifespan. So what because what a lot of our listeners are, are would be in the camp of wanting to be the right partner to really attract the right partner for them that they are envisioning wanting to share their life with. They are, you know, aspiring to build a family with, to build a life with that one person. What are some of the questions you'd suggest a single woman in particular ask herself as she navigates her way to becoming and to being that right partner for for the kind of partner, you know, she'd want to share her life with and build a family with. What What are some questions she should ask herself? Well, I think if we're talking in terms of a heterosexual female mm-hmm. who wants to yeah. have what we, we sometimes call a traditional family, um, but even within the bounds of a traditional family, of course, nowadays we're talking about dual income households. So the gender role divide within the household uh, might not look like, say, the 1950s or something. Um, but you know, she, would want a, she would want a guy maybe who can at least provide 50% of the provision or 50% of the childcare, et cetera. So assuming that this is the model she's looking for, the first question to ask herself is, is she really ready to be a full partner or is she looking for a rescue? Is she suffering from the mm-hmm. Cinderella complex? Mm-hmm. Is she living somewhere in the past to think that there's a man out there who's just going to write a big check for her to do the laundry and raise the kids? Because that man is dwindling in numbers in our culture. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. So that's the first thing is have you fully developed yourself? your career, whatever. And I should also say, like, it's perfectly okay to say to yourself, you know, I want to be a really good mother and a really good wife. Mm -hmm. And I don't really want to have a big career because during those years, I'm going to, you know, there's no shame in wanting to do what evolution has programmed you to. However, You do need to understand finances and protect yourself because we do know at the end of these relationships, at the end of the lifespan or at the end of the divorce, the menopausal divorce, here are these women who have no income, who have no skills for the the Uh marketplace and now have an empty nest and judges are looking at them and saying, well, you can get a job now. I don't see why you can't work. So the days of these Uh alimony checks that will protect women for life are also gone. So really understand family law if you want that. But what I really want to say here is figure out really who you are and what you want and advertise it honestly. You know, I think guys would appreciate if you said, hey, I really want to get married instead of pretending to be the fun girl and keeping it light and dating until maybe he sort of sneakily falls in love with you. That's crazy. You really want to put it up front at the beginning. No, I'm of a certain age. And my reproduction, reproductive window is closing in a few years. And I would like to find somebody who wants to sign on to reproduce and raise a family together. 
And there's no shame in that. That's why we've been put on the earth to reproduce. So yeah, figure out who you are and what you really want. And don't be afraid to advertise that. Excellent. And you said something really interesting. So, you know, let's talk about the woman for whom she really is looking for a situation where she can also, you know, build her career with her, with her partner and build a family, you know, that, that, like you, that model that you said, kind of a, a co-provider and a co-provider, you know, with respect to the kids as well, in terms of taking care. Any, what, what approach, any, any questions you'd suggest for that really, you know, that narrow segment of a woman who actually is looking to, to want to, you know, be able to not only build a family with a partner, but, but continue to build a career as well at the same time. Any, and my advice to that woman is simply yeah. to check yourself as far as your own internal sexism. If you're looking mm. for a power guy, that power guy mm-hmm. might be the guy who can power a stroller. And so what ends up happening is that women unconsciously collude with patriarchy. They say they're looking mm-hmm. for a partner, somebody who can help out with domestic responsibilities, somebody who can help out with childcare. And then they go yeah. and search for uh, the highest power wealthy guy. Because, you know, back in our anthropological past, men learned to hoard resources because it was attractive to women. It attracted mates. That's one of the reasons. Well, the only reason men make money is so that they can get access to more women or higher status women. But every time you choose a wealthy guy over a good partner, a good helper, a great guy, you are colluding with patriarchy. And so you want to check your own sexism and say, I want it all. I want my career, but I want a guy who's actually into fatherhood. Well, then don't date the high testosterone, uh, you know, raging narcissist power guy because he's not going to be changing diapers and you can't try to change it. You can't put a square peg in a round hole. Very, very profound. Absolutely. Now we're going to Turn that we're going to shift the gears here and we're going to ask the same thing for a single man, right? So again, let me, let me paint the prototype of this single man, right? Because as I said, there's so much diversity in who we are and what we're seeking. And, uh, but this would be the single man who also is looking to, um, is hoping, is aspiring to, to share his life with, with a partner and, and, you know, build a family with her. And, you know, what questions can he ask himself as he navigates his way to, you know, being the right person for someone? And and he likewise would be looking for someone that he can, you know, respect in, in multiple levels and can also, you know, learn from in terms of, um, you know, in, in, and and have the have high level conversations with her and, and engage with her, not, you know, into those all and multidimensionally, right? Into mentally, physically, emotionally, right? Kind of all of that. So what, what are some questions for that single man to ask himself? So I want to remind you that we're not talking about deep psychological processes here and attachment style. We're mostly talking about sociology, but I would like to talk mm-hmm. more about attachment style after this. But let me just say that um, you know, men also have to sort of check themselves when it comes to wanting your cake and being able to eat it too. In other words, men, if women are guilty 
for chasing men with money and then complaining that he's not a good father. Uh, men are guilty mm-hmm. for chasing women who are young and beautiful and fertile and then wondering why she's not a good provider or she's not good at domestically or whatever, right? But she's pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so men get easily distracted and they're wired that way to get distracted by beauty, um, but they're not looking at the deeper quality of a person. But I mentioned that I want to um, talk a little bit about early life programming. You know, as much as we talk about, well, they should ask this question and they should look for people who have these kinds of jobs or this kind of education, that's all intellectual, right? That's in your prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex. But our romantic sure. decisions come from something deeper in our emotional brain, something unconscious. You see, in the first year of life, when our brain triples in size, these babies form a kind of blueprint for love based on how that caregiver interacted with their biological predisposition. So example, let's say a baby's come into the world with a predisposition for a gene to have anxiety and needing a lot of carrying needing to be close and rocked. And and that gene may never flourish because they end up with a caregiver who every time they cry, the caregiver picks them up and gives them love and really pays attention to their needs. But what if they end up with a caregiver who says, no, the baby book says, let them cry it out. It's good for their lungs. They're going to learn to sleep through the night if they're just left to cry alone in that dark room with their wet diaper. So they end up growing up to be an adult whose love pattern is mixed with longing. This undying longing where they are constantly attracted to people who can't give the love back that they deserve. And they will continue to play out this pattern. In the other sense, there might be a baby who needs to be a little independent and they may have a caregiver that literally smothers them, overfeeds them, forces the bottle down their mouth when they're not even hungry, wraps them and swaddles them too tight. So they grow up to be the adult that feels easily engulfed and smothered by partners. Like, why is he calling so much? Why is she calling so much? Why does she always want to be here? Uh, Or they're so needy, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it's incumbent on all of us to do the psychological excavating and trying to figure out the root of our own individual attachment style Because otherwise, we're going to continue to date the same person over and over again. They may wear different clothes, but we'll date them over and over again um, because we're trying to work out our childhood conflicts. So we can talk about what to ask on a first date or what kind of jobs or gender roles. But that is secondary to what happens unconsciously with our attachment style. Let's talk about that psychological excavating, and let's talk about someone who is saying, huh, something Wendy said resonated, whether it be the one with the, you know, the the smothering or whether it be the one who, you know, anxiety, what what have you. In terms of the psychological excavating, what what are the steps, right? What what are some tools that someone can take? Excellent question. I'm ready to do the excavating. What what do I do first? (laughs) What's my baby step? Well, research has shown that there are three kinds of relationships that can heal attachment injuries. The first and the most important and the one that everybody, if you're continuing to have relationship difficulties, everybody owes this to themselves, 
is the relationship between the therapist and the patient, right? Going to personal therapy, spending a time talking about your childhood, putting an intellectual eye, a little bit of space between you and the emotional event of it all. Um, and one of my favorite metaphors for emotional growth is uh, this, the stages of emotional growth that you will go through with therapy. Imagine that your relationship problem is a hole in the road, uh, whether it's a bad boy that you're constantly chasing or the girl who can't love you back. Just imagine it as a hole in the road. So stage one of therapy is where you're walking down the street, you don't see the hole, and you fall in it. Then you go to therapy, and then you're walking down the street, you see the hole, and you still fall in it. You continue in therapy, and then you hit stage three, which is you walk down the street, you see the hole, and now you take extra precaution to walk around the hole. But stage four of therapy is the most important. That's where you walk down the street, you see the hole, and you just take a different street. Mm. So I think that therapy is important. Secondly, parenthood. Just because people have attachment issues doesn't mean they don't reproduce. All those dates and having sex produce babies, even short-term marriages mm-hmm. or, or, or long-term marriages. And so if, if people can work to have a secure attachment style with their own babies and children, it can help heal the one in them. Because as you're holding that baby and saying, it's okay, daddy's coming home. It's okay. I love you. I'll always be here for you. Mommy's here. Guess who hears that too? Your own brain. So you are self-consoling at the same time and healing yourself. And finally, if you're lucky enough, if you have an insecure attachment style, to find somebody who happens to have a secure attachment style, eventually you will calm down because they'll be like the strong, steady person who goes, it's okay, knock yourself out. I'm right here. When you want to come back, you're cute when you're mad. And uh, they, they're just sort of the cool person. That's more rare because usually people with secure attachment styles move away from people who have a lot of anxiety, who are drama queens, who are playing games, or people who are avoidant and don't return calls or just depend on text. And, you know, they'll just move away because it doesn't match their model of attachment. Hmm. Okay. And I think you, you showed, you know, there were some signals you gave in terms of what someone might look for out in the in the um, in the dating world and and you said in terms of sort of the playing the games the drama what are some what are some signs of these different attachment styles oh, that one yeah, might let's, pick up well let's yeah. talk about the most important let's only talk about this how do you spot somebody who has a secure attachment style well mm-hmm. somebody who has a secure attachment style likes themselves but doesn't overcompensate by bragging about who they are, but they have this quiet self-confidence. They also can admit that they're wrong. They can say they're sorry. They're also very good at not only giving care, but receiving care. Think about it. Sometimes people are one or the other, right? And they Mm -hmm. also tend to have good communication skills when it comes to their feelings. They don't have arguments that are like, well, you did this and you made me feel that way and you... They say things like, huh, I felt kind of blah, blah, blah when you said that. And and I'm wondering if my feeling was, uh, or am I getting something here? And they're really comfortable with emotional intimacy, being able to talk about feelings. 
Um, they don't run away from conflict. They don't play the silent treatment. They don't say, I'm not calling that person back. You know, these are for people who have insecure attachment style. So the anxious person, the hallmark of the anxious person is vigilantly watching the clock between the last text, counting the number of words in the text, counting the number of hours between the last call or the last date or the last coffee and ruminating on it. And when the person takes too long in their mind to get back to them, their anxiety turns to anger. And then they play crazy games where they try to make the person chase them. So they kind of run away to try to get that person chased. The avoidant person says and does whatever they need to do to obtain sex because they're still biologically wired to want to reproduce, but they want to dance around intimacy. They don't like uh, a lot of afterplay and snuggling time where the real intimacy grows. They don't want to talk about feelings. They're happy with the foreplay and anything they need to say to get into the bed, but they're not good afterwards. And often after they have sex, they disappear for a period of time because that amount of intimacy was intolerable for them. So they need a break from it because it's just too much. Let me ask you something very, very, very helpful. Um, let me ask you, in terms of, do you see gender differences with respect to how how these play out, how one would demonstrate some of these, um, you know, whether it be the avoidance. Let's talk about the avoidance style, right? Because well, how I will say that the research shows there are slightly more avoidant men and slightly more mm-hmm. anxious women, but never assume that it's all always one particular gender. Um, because there are very anxious men too. They just acted out in slightly different ways. And there are very avoidant women um, that are very beautiful and they smile and they seem engaging. But then you realize they really haven't said anything tender. They haven't said anything deep or touching. They're talking and smiling and they look good. But I feel like I'm not connecting with them. Thanks, Dr. Wendy. I really appreciate your sharing your valuable insights with us. And for our listeners, in case you've joined us late or would like to share the show with people in your life, I'd like to remind you that today's radio show will be archived and available as a podcast on Intersections Match's website, which is intersectionsmatch.com. Try as I may, I could never.